All right, let's get going. Um, so I was doing some thinking earlier today on um, the most powerful words in the English language, and I'm sure uh, some interesting words come to mind. I, I'm sure there are many. Uh, I, I read a lot of websites where kind of businesses were giving their take on it. I certainly think one of the most powerful words uh, in the English language, if not the most powerful, is this. And this image really like helps uh, show like how how deep uh, and powerful the word is. Um, I, I remember uh, being a kid, and uh, certainly the most um, times I ever got told "I love you" were were from my parents, uh, my grandparents. Um, man, you know, we, we really had a family that that said uh, "I love you" uh, quite a bit through all of us. And then I remember as I grew older, though my parents were saying uh, I love you at times, like when I was a teenager, I thought in my head, I'm not so sure, right? Because like they were, they were uh, putting commands on me or, or barriers on me, uh, on me that were ultimately very beneficial for me. But at the time, I had a very difficult time um, receiving it in love. Well, now I'm on the other side. And uh, I literally, like I, I, I've lost count though at... You know, certain days I've tried to keep track of how many times I tell my kids and my wife that I love them. Um, I mean, my kids, it's, it's over and over and over. And my, my guess is, and I hope this doesn't happen, but my guess is there's going to be a time uh, when, you know, that maybe they get a little bit older, uh, they get a little bit defiant. I'm sure it won't happen with Avery, but the other two, when they get a little bit more defiant, um, that they'll wonder in their mind, right? Like, Dad says that. He loves us, but I'm not so sure. And, uh, and so because of all that, I want to ask you guys two questions. The first uh, is this. When was the last time that someone said, I love you, and you didn't believe them? Just think about this. The last time that a friend, a coworker, maybe your boss, which could have been awkward, uh, <laughs> someone that you're close to, like, right? Like, and they said, I love you, and for whatever reason... Uh, deep down inside, you, you, you struggled to believe it. You smiled. You received it because when, like people use love like it's, you know, a political game at times, right? And so it, it still has and carries with it a certain sense of warmth. But in your heart, you're like, th- those are just words. It doesn't mean anything. Like, I don't believe you. You don't love me. Let's flip the question a little bit and ask it this way. When was the last time you said, I love you, and you didn't mean it? Uh, we talk about it often here. I love that we're a church that, that says this word often to one another. Um, I've had some uh, friends before that have visited here, and uh, afterwards they said, I got told I love you by four people who I don't know. Should I be concerned? <laughs> like, is this, you know, I was like, no, no I, I don't, well, at least probably not, you know. Um, so I love that. But my guess is, is that at times, because of how it's been used for us and because of how we've used it. The word love has gotten uh, cheapened. It's, it's uh, lost maybe some of its power. We've started to take it for granted. Listen, this text tonight is, is so incredibly heavy. And it, I, I want to I just bring you in in all vulnerability into what's happened in this text. So we had a plan. Um, our staff always sits down together and we map out what we're going to study and how we're going to study it. And up until this morning, uh, my plan was to teach the whole chapter. And as the guys started funneling in the office this morning, I was like, guys, like, I can't. Like, I can't do it. There is so much in 16 verses. You know, and I mean, we could, like, we could just go for it. But I'm like, guys, like, we have to hang in these 16 verses. And so, you know, everyone's like, right on, let's do it. And so I invite you guys to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. Um, we only have four more weeks left in Exodus, and uh, if, if you're kind of like looking at it from a chapter perspective, you're wondering how that's going to get accomplished, uh, you'll see. Hang with us. We'll end uh, Exodus just before Christmas. We started on January 1st, and so it'll take us uh, just about a year, and here in a couple weeks, you'll get to hear what book we're studying next. Um, it is not one of Oprah's uh, novels, I guarantee you. It is a book of the Bible, so a lot to anticipate, all right? Now, these uh, called chosen people of God have... I've been on quite a journey. And in most recent times, what we've seen is they and their idolatrous hearts have turned their backs on God. 
God, in response to that, uh, kills 3,000 of those who are unwilling to repent. He then uh, not only kills 3,000, he then adds a plague on all of the people, and he begins to set in a rhythm what a renewed covenant will look like. In other words, the people have broken the covenant. They've broken their side, incapable of doing it, showing and proving themselves uh, incapable. And so now we get to watch and see what God is going to do in response to all of that. So here we go in verse 1 of Exodus 34, only 16 verses tonight, and it'll take us two hours. Here we go, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, which I'm already questioning, right? Cut for yourself. Like Moses has a ton of gifts, and but we haven't yet seen him as like a stone cutter person, right? So Apparently Moses, old grandpa Moses, has to go cut for himself two tablets, just like the first. And here's what God says. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on what? Come on, somebody. That were on what? The first tablets. This is huge. Absolutely huge. God does not change his expectation even though his people were unable to meet it. In other words, like his people, idolatrous hearts, God could step back and be like, man, we've really kind of, maybe, we, maybe we've shot too far for this. Like, like maybe we're asking for too much. Uh, maybe if we uh, allowed some, you know, like one day out of every month you can be, in, you know, you can have an idolatrous heart. Uh, one day out of every month you can say several cuss words. Uh, one day out of every month you can hate your enemies. One, you know, like all of these things, maybe... Maybe God in response would lower the expectation in the hope that his people would maybe one day be able to match up. This is troubling for many people that God never changes the expectation. Never changes it. Uh, Our culture, our American church culture, very much struggles with this. Here's what I've seen. I've seen the bar across Christendom get lowered so that it can encompass more people in their acts of righteousness and in doing so, taking the power of Jesus completely away. In other words, if God lessens the bar or lessens the expectation, then why do we need Jesus? If he makes it so man can follow him perfectly, then there is no need of a savior to do it on our behalf. Are you guys with me, somebody tonight, please? So he doesn't lessen the bar. Why? Because Jesus is the plan. Jesus will perfectly follow God's law. Jesus will be what the people of Israel couldn't be, what you and I can't be. And so I love the fact he's like, look, they broke the covenant, but here's what's going to happen. Why don't you go make yourself a couple new tablets? I'm going to write on them the exact same things that I wrote on the first one. And for those of you that are just started joining with us, what, what happened is Moses comes down the mountain and all the people are worshiping a golden, golden calf and he chucks and ducks the tablets and they break in half, okay? So that's why old man Moses has to journey back up. Here we go, verse two. This is awesome. Be ready. Check this out. Come on. Be ready by the morning. Now, because there's not like, uh, you know, three days away from now in the morning or... God doesn't specify a week from now in the morning because God says in the morning, I have no other way to take that. And I asked our Hebrew scholar, Jared, I have no other way to take that except in the morning, like tomorrow morning. So Grandpa Moses has to fashion for himself two new tablets and he has to kind of scurry around, figure it out and prepare these tablets. I picture like Moses thinking at this point, like, look, I've been up and down this mountain several times, right? Like, I'm kind of, like, I got, you know, I got lower back issues, you know, like my sleep number bed is, you know, it's kind of off right now. God, I don't know what I'm going to do. And now you're wanting me to come back up tomorrow morning. And how, how is all this going to work? I I picture a a man potentially arguing with God's timing. I picture men and women constantly arguing with God's timing. And just like we just talked about an expectation, When you argue with God's timing, when you set your alarm clock and not his, what you do is you say, I don't really need you. We'll work all of this universe stuff on my schedule, God. And whenever you're done, whenever you're ready to follow me, then we'll go for it. Now, we'll never communicate that out of our mouth because we don't want to be called heretics. But in our heart, the way that we live, 
Like how many times have you set your God alarm clock and said, all right, God, now it's time. Look, the alarm went off. Are you ready? And God's like, three days ago. Where were you? I said, tomorrow. I said, talk to this coworker tomorrow. Why did you wait three days? Well, I was scared. Hold on a second. I've given you not a spirit of timidity, but a power of love and a sound mind. What is there to be scared about? I'm with you, right? So I love the fact that he says, be ready by the marnin and come up in the marnin to Mount Sinai. That's the way Hebrews talk. And present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. So here goes Moses back up on the mountain. In verse three, he adds a very specific command. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. In other words, remember Joshua last time got to go halvesies, okay? Moses gets to go all the way. His assistant Joshua is kind of helping him halfway up the mountain. Not this time. Just Moses, just God, this beautiful, intimate, bless you relationship. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. I mean, this thing has to be barren except you and I. Uh, one of the things that I, I'm so passionate uh, about talking right now is, is uh, intimacy with the Lord. We uh, wrestled with it a lot last week. I love the, the picture of the body of Christ and how we corporately celebrate together. Um, what, a, like what a visual, what an encounter with God to be able to be the body tonight together. At the same time, I love the moments where it feels like it's me and God on a mountain or me and God in a closet, or me and God in my office, or me and God in my car. And like there's no one grazing, there's no, like it just, let me say it this way. If you haven't had that, that sense that God is like so intimately connected with you in these precious moments, uh, my friends, you're, you're missing out on one of the treasures that is God's grace. The intimacy that comes in moments like this. In other words, it's easy to say, well, only Moses has this kind of access. And I I just beg to differ now in Christ. We all can approach the throne of grace. And so I just celebrate these times where it's like nothing else in the world. Nothing else in the world. There's no stress. There's nothing. It's the Lord and I. And I crave more and more of this. So verse 4, here we go. Oh, my goodness. Strap on your seatbelt. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, like with scissors or something. Not sure. And he rose early in the morning, look at this, and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. In my opinion, Moses has a lot of reasons to bail at this point. He's got a lot of reasons to jump ship, okay? Now, the the reasons not to may outweigh, certainly, but certainly frustrated with the people, seeing the inconsistency of the people. God has been faithful, but these people that he keeps going back to, I mean, they have to, as we even see in his righteous anger, they have to be getting to him. I mean, when God commands this, hey, come back up up the mountain, bring the two tablets, in his flesh, like, I'm sure there's a piece of Moses like, you know what, I'm just gonna head on back to where I came from. Like, God, these are your people, you take care of it. But what does verse four say? As the Lord had commanded him. The mantra now of Moses' life is as the Lord commands me. Uh, picture this statement for you. If your entire life was I, you fill in the blank, as the Lord commanded. Your entire existence overwhelmed with this statement. I spoke to this person as the Lord commanded. I led my family as the Lord commanded. I loved my enemy as the Lord commanded. I journeyed with this difficult person as the Lord commanded. I was gracious even though it was difficult as the Lord commanded. I celebrated even though at times I felt like mourning as the Lord commanded. And on and on and on, the beauty of simple obedience is something I think that our gaze has gone past. Because we still see statements like this as burdensome because we see ourselves not being able to measure up. Some of you right now are thinking like, yeah, I'm like, I don't know. I'm betting like 300, you know? And some of you are like, you're playing that scheme in in terms of Major League Baseball. You're like, that's a good contract, right? If I'm like three out of 10 of all the things that the Lord commanded me, I'm a millionaire, right? It's not about our perfection in Christ. We could say it that way. 
the grace of the Lord that's upon us, his spirit that's inside of us, guiding us, empowering us to obey, is a gracious, loving God who is helping us learn how to live. Moses doesn't need explanations. And we also don't get a picture that old man Moses is like shaking his cane at God. Hey, come back up, bring some, bring some tablets. And as the Lord commanded, Moses did so. Uh, I, for one, and I've talked about them uh, um, many times here. I mean, I've, I've learned from a lot of mistakes. Uh, I wish in a lot of ways I could go back to certain decisions that I've made throughout my life and say, I wish I could make that statement because it would have saved me so much hurt and pain and regret and shame. I'm wondering if some of you guys are with me. So if you've ever wished that, then you know that it's true. That God in his grace has given us the opportunity to follow his direction. And all the hurt, the pain, the regret, the bad decisions that led you down roads that have drastically affected your heart. Like if you could just go back, right? You would say like it would have been so much easier just to follow your command. If I wouldn't have gossiped in this way, then it wouldn't have started this wildfire. If I would have just loved this person instead of, you know, throwing dabs, man, it 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 would have changed everything. We get the picture here of, of a man, not a nation at this point, but a man who is doing as the Lord commands, and it is absolutely beautiful. So as the Lord commands, he takes in his hands these two tablets of stone. The Lord, verse 5, descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Hello, come on now. Stood with him. So we get this very like, like human perspective of God. God and Moses intimately connected, standing with them there. And then God proclaims the name of the Lord. Verse 6, one of the most beautiful verses in the entire book of Exodus. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast what? Love and faithfulness. Here we go. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We saw a very similar verse in Exodus 20, verse 6, a part of the Ten Commandments. But I've told you guys before, there are zero mentions of the word love in terms of from God in the entire book of Genesis. Zero, none, zilch. The very first significant mention is in Exodus 20, and the second is right here. God bellows this message of his love to Moses. I am, he says, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping, verse 7, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, God sets a precedent that the guilty will forever be guilty. Now, in terms of uh, the, the judicial system, there will be a ransom that will be paid. But those who decide not to be paid by that ransom will forever find themselves guilty. And God will not release that guilt. In Christ, all guilt is released. But for those who decide not to, for those who shun themselves, for them, those who turn their back on the Lord Jesus, then he will not deny it. My question here is, does he mean it? When God says, I'm abounding in steadfast love, does he mean it? When you hear verses that talk about God's love, have you received it like he means it? Has God become the parent when you're a teenager that he says, I love you, and you're like, no, you don't? I've heard that line before. I heard that line once from a person who abused me. You don't love me, God. I heard that line before from someone in a relationship, and then they broke up with me. You don't love me, God. I heard that line before in my marriage, and then I watched all things fall apart. You don't love me, God. Do you think he means it here? Is God positioning himself using the word love in a political measure? Hey, look, if I just throw out love right now, even as scripture later says, it covers over a multitude of sins. So look, Moses, let's just go ahead and get this out here. I love you, man. You know, and because he's standing there, they kind of hug it out in some fashion with God's back turned because he can't see his face. I don't know what, right? But, but is this the kind of image that's going on here? Like, does God mean it? Like all throughout the scripture, does he mean it? Are they just words? If he means it, it changes everything. If the word love all throughout the scripture coming from the mouth of God, talking about God, if it's true, then it changes everything. 
But I think there's a lot of reasons why we believe he doesn't mean it. I'd like to journey through some of those. Next slide. When have you questioned God's love? Um, when have you been sitting in the shower in the face of whatever it is that you are journeying through and you're like, God does not love me? When have you ever been driving in the car and the, the doubt just poured over you, God doesn't love me or why would a loving God dot, dot, dot? Have you ever questioned it? I hear some reasons why I think we do. Next slide. Inevitably, uh, one of the greatest questions that I receive as a pastor that I'm sure many of you receive from um, either uh, Christians that are wrestling or non-believers alike, how could a loving God dot, 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 right? Why would a loving God let this person die? Why would a loving God, like how would a loving God somehow, you know, allow 9-11 to take place? Why would a loving God do X, Y, Z. Many of you, when tragedy is, you know, you're holding a passed away loved one in your arms. And for some of you, that has been the moment where you've questioned it the most. God, you, you, you can't love me because you, you have no idea in this moment the kind of pain I'm going through. So for some of you, that's, that's you. Next uh, slide. Uh, what I've learned is... Um, not being alone, but loneliness is one of the greatest dangers for you and I. Whenever we feel isolated, whenever we feel like we're on an island, whenever we feel like we're disconnected from people, come on. Uh, some of you guys, some of your most uh, dangerous times in your relationship with the Lord has been when you start to feel disconnected from uh, relationships or people that care the body of Christ. So some of you, when you've been alone, and maybe even some, some friends of yours have tried to console you with uh, words like, God loves you and he cares and he'll comfort you. In your mind, you're like, no, he doesn't care. No one cares. Uh, maybe if you're, if you're like me, uh, you've had that moment in your life where you really believed in your, like in your heart that no one cared. That there wasn't one person in the world who, who gave a rip about you. Have you ever felt that way? Right? And then you project all of that angst on the Lord. He doesn't care. He doesn't love me. He's not interested. He's not here. Next slide. Maybe you've questioned God's love when you're not getting what you want, like a six-year-old or a six-month-old toddler, right? You know, like, no, I want the, what do they make, the little sp SpaghettiOs? Is that when six-months-old start to eat SpaghettiOs? I don't know. <laughs> Heidi, when do we start feeding our kids real food? I don't even know. I was giving them pizza at like three months, you know, like, don't tell them mom, you know. Papa John's will change your life, kids, you know. Add a little bit of those garlic, you know. I was putting that Papa John's garlic on their pacifier, you know, like, don't worry about it, kids. It's going to help your cholesterol, you know, right? Think about it, though. Think about it, though. Like a six-month-old who's not getting what they want. And you guys have seen it, right? Like, you give a six-month-old, uh, six like, a, you know, something that they really, really love, and they're like, no more of that. What, what happens, Right? I mean, you literally feel like it's rapture time, you know? It's like, it's game over. This kid is going to, you know, the neighbors are going to think it's, you know, crazy stuff's going on in here. Um, and that's much of how we, like, God, you're not giving me what, what I want. You must not love me. God, I've been praying for this for, for years. You still haven't given me what I want. You must not care. Maybe you felt that way once or thrice, right? Picture yourself, right? Like beating your your arms up in the air, crying, throwing a, a temper tantrum at the Lord. Some of you guys have questioned God's love. Next slide. Uh, like we talked about last week, when your relationship with God is just in proximity. Of course, naturally. If you're not intimately connected with the Lord, not pursuing him, then, then you think that the distance means something, that he has somehow shunned you. And all of these things so far are based on lies, Right? When you're away from the truth and the lie starts to permeate in your head and your heart, then you start believing these things. Even though there's tons of scripture that would combat every single one of these. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Like, he, he's not going anywhere. He's with you. Uh, finally, one of, your, uh, one of you questioned uh, God's love. Uh, next slide. 
This last one is setting up something we're going to be wrestling with here in a second. Here's what I'm here's what I'm learning about the body of Christ. Um, one of the things that I long for the most in this body is that collectively we um, we are encouraging one another's faith so much. We're talking about what God is doing in our life. We're sharing how uh, we felt incapable, and yet God came through. We're sharing answered prayer. Um, because what the body of Christ can be for one another is they can be one of the greatest encouragements for a deeper faith. When all around you are a whole bunch of people who are at reckless abandonment, pursuing the, the Lord with an exposed heart, with a humble heart, with a desiring heart, and all their mess and all their failures, but they're pursuing him, and their faith is increasing, and they're being encouraged. And, and yes, sometimes we'll have to uh, you know, look, look behind and say, hey, it's, we're with you, you know? And, and as some of us are struggling, pull others along and embrace them and comfort them in the time of need. But the body of Christ has this huge opportunity to encourage one another's faith. So why at times are we living it so individually in our communication? simultaneously, the body of Christ can also be the greatest detriment to our faith if we're never talking about answered prayer. If we're never sharing what the Lord is doing, then what happens is we get the premise that we're all at the masquerade, that we're all here, it's Halloween, everyone's put on the Christian face, we throw some cinnamon rolls at each other, we smile, spread some joy, call it a day and go home. Not one person has been encouraged by someone else in the body of Christ about what God has done today. And so when others around you begin to question God's love, I tell you what, it can be just as infectious as when others are saying, no, he is love. Let me tell you why I know that again. Church, do you long for this too? Like I'm craving right now in our law families for these law families to be to just become like what's 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 when you cook uh, when you cook an egg uh, incubator is that what that word is? Come on, like what do you, what do you like when a chicken has an egg and you put it in a heater? What is that called, Don? Incubator. Okay. I didn't want to say something inappropriate there. Like it could head down that line, you know. You talk, start talking about reproduction. Anyway, right? Like, right. Now listen, listen. I desire so deeply for our law families to be incubators of prayer. Like when we gather on Sundays, it is by far one of the easiest ways for us to be reminded again that God is hearing and answering our prayers and sometimes saying no. When was the last time you heard someone say, I prayed about this and God straight said no and I'm completely okay with it? We feel like the answer prayer at times is only when he says yes. Do you picture Moses on the mountain hearing I'm abounding in love. As for me and my house, what I picture at that point is a man who thinks God means it. Otherwise, he'd walk away. It's a man who got to hear from the mouth of the one whose definition is love, that he's abounding in love. Absolutely beautiful. So I just want to collect all of us right now and say, I think we all struggle here in some ways. All of us at one time or another, or maybe right now, have doubted God's love. Let this hang in your head, and let's keep plowing through the scripture. Check this out. Verse 8. What's his response? Moses, what's the word? Quickly, okay? Most 80-plus-year-olds that I know don't do much quickly, but Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Now, listen to this. Who's looking? Who's looking? Come on. Who's looking? No one. It's Moses and the Lord. Does he have any reason for demonstrative worship apart from just in his heart believing that God means what he says? In his heart being so overwhelmed in awe of the holiness of God that he has to just get on his face. It's not for the applause of other believers on the hill. Oh, look at Moses. He's so holy. He's prostrate on his face, worshiping God. There's no one there. Don't you love this picture? 
an old man with bad knees on his face because the natural response to God communicating his love and his steadfastness and his mercy is I have to bow and worship quickly. I'm not going to delay. Not going to delay. He bows down quickly, his head towards the ground, and he worships. And verse 9, then he begins his plea. He worships first, and then he pleads. Verse 9, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. Remember what we talked about last week, a stubborn people. And he says, And pardon our iniquity. In our sin and take us for your inheritance, Moses pleads a picture from his face. And he said, verse 10, behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or any nation. And all the people among, among whom you are, you are shall see the work of the Lord. And here is one of my favorite words in all of scripture, for it is a what? It is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Now, if you've been around me for more than 30 seconds, like I say awesome quite generally. I, like I replaced um with awesome. I just say it a lot. And so, of course, I was questioning with Jared. I'm like, okay, so so does the Hebrew word here really mean awesome? Like, does God really, you know, does he really say like rad? You know, does, does he, does he really say awesome? Is that really what's happening? Now, uh, by my recollection of our conversation, uh, there's only three times in the scripture that this word gets translated awesome. Other times, its synonym, in other words, is fear. But in this case, both of us agreed that the proper uh, translation is, is awesome. What God is confirming in Moses is, listen, you think you've seen amazing things? You think you've seen the sea open? I mean, you think you've seen some plagues? You think you've seen some redemption? Like you think you've seen me move? Oh my goodness. You're gonna see marvels. You're gonna watch awesome things happen. And then all of you, at least a portion of you, are like, yeah, my faith would be strengthened and I would believe in God's love if I saw a sea part. If I saw a sea part right now, I'll tell you what, right now, Mark, you got a deal. I'll believe in this whole God thing. If I, you know, give Mike Malone a big staff, right? And, and if he parts the sea, then all right, I'll, I'll believe in this God thing. Can I reiterate to you once again what we say so often here? You are the parted sea. What's the greater marvel, a sea opening or a heart changing? I mean, what's the greater miracle? A plague coming down from the sky or a heart that was running in the opposite direction of the Lord becoming completely and fully on mission for the glory of God? What's the greater miracle? I mean, I look at a room full of parted seas. I'm not going to say I look at a room full of plagues. That would sound a little bit weird. (laughs) But I look at a room full of the awesome works of God. So why would you ever diminish that? Why would we ever take the marvels of God and throw them away? How could we, listen, how could we ever forget that? In times when tragedy hits, in times when we're alone, in times when others are doubting, how could we ever forget that he is, in fact, a loving God? Now some big stuff that's on my heart for tonight, verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perseites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And if you've been journeying with us in Exodus, we've seen this exact same verse over and over and over. And verse 12, if, you, if, you, if you've been missing all night, get here right now. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Take care, he says. Jace Johnston was his name. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing you guys have a name as well. The first person that started cussing around you, okay? Remember this? Now, for some of you, maybe unfortunately it was your parents. Maybe it was your grandparents. For me, I, I didn't grow up in a, in a home where uh, cussing was prevalent. 
And so third grade, Jace Johnston, still remember his name, and I'll tell you why. Um, we were like hanging at the little circular uh, concrete things at the park. You guys know what I'm talking about? They don't make those anymore because now everything's safe. Well, back when I was a kid, the playground was danger, and it was awesome. <laughs> at any, like you could die in like six different ways at the playground. Did you remember that? Seriously, like the jungle gym, if you like took a spill, it was game over. I mean, you were dying. I mean, I witnessed three kids die in my grade school. It was crazy, you know? Just kidding. And um, so I, I remember Jace Johnson being over there. And uh, we were kind of becoming friends, you know? And, and man, the surface seemed really nice. And, uh, and then he started saying words that, um, that like didn't sound quite right. Isn't that weird? Like you can never hear a cuss word in your life. And then all of a sudden when you hear one, you're like, that sounds a bit odd, you know? Like, like, that sounds like if I say that, I'm naughty, right? It's kind of this weird, it's this weird thing. So, of course, uh, inevitably I go home and I, I'm talking to my mom. And so I'm like, hey, you know, mom. And, and uh, so, yeah, Jason and I were talking today, and I don't remember the exact conversation, but I dropped one of the bombs to my mom. You know, I'm like, you know, so, yeah, so-and-so, and, you know, bleep, bleep, you know, and... and and she, like, looks at me, right? And it was just this, right, this overwhelming conversation, like, what has happened to my son, you know? And, and um, all I have to say is relationships are, are incredibly essential in our life. Um, God is commanding his people, look, you need to take care. Uh, more specifically, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of these lands. Like, take care. You have to think about your relationships with tremendous passion because here's what happens in relationships. Next slide, okay? In relationships, you are either being influenced or you're influencing. Now, there are some relationships that certainly work both ways, but most of our relationships, you're either being influenced or you are the one that, are, that, that is doing the influencing. And so God knows, look, I know these people are impressionable. We've already seen how impressionable they are. They start journeying through these lands. He's already given this command. It's going to be so easy for them just to cave in uh, to the things that are happening around them. So I want to spend a couple minutes and give you a chance and space and time right now to evaluate your relationships. So here's what happens as, as believers. We're told all of our life, rightfully so, that we're to love those who do not believe. And can I, amen, right? Okay. I was just having a conversation with, with a brother about a particular sin issue that is often a very, very condemned in the church. And he said, so what's Matthias's approach? And I said, Matthias's approach is hate the sin, love the sinner. You know, like we're, we want to journey with people. We're not going to condone sin, but we're going to walk alongside of people in all things. So we're all told that all of our life. What happens then is we get around some relationships that start influencing us in a very negative fashion. But we start believing in our mind that it's more important for us to stay in those relationships because we're supposed to love those folks than repent and turn from our sin and reevaluate what's happening in the situation. Let me say it another way. If you're just in proximity with God, then you are in complete danger all over the map. As a believer, if you're in proximity... If you and God are, are at kind of arm's bay, you've been, uh, uh, you've been distancing yourself from him, right now is an amazing opportunity for you to step back and ask yourself, what relationships are influence, influencing me away from the love of Christ? Now, does it mean that we um, uh, completely uh, turn our backs on those relationships? Not all the time, but sometimes. Uh, what I've learned in, is, is in the season of my life where I have been intimately connected with the Lord, my discernment is at a much higher place. And so I find myself as the one who is influencing even in very dark, uh, even in very dark situations. I talk about the story all the time. Uh, there was one uh, massive frat party that I went to every single year, and it was called the Boo Bash. And I wanted to go so I could win the Halloween uh, costume contest, which I did perennial, perennial, perennially. Okay, I was duct tape boy one year, like wrapped my whole body in duct tape and won, right? But it, it, was, the, it, was, the one, it was the one time a year where I was just like, like I'm, I will not be influenced here. I mean, there was alcohol and craziness and Halloween costumes are a great reason for girls to dress scandalously. All of that's all around. But I'm like, I can exist in this situation right now because of my proximity with the Lord. Many of you, 
right now, even in where you're at with Christ, cannot. What God says is take care. I'm just asking you right now to evaluate. Are there relationships in your life right now that need to change because you're the one that, that is being influenced away from Christ? It doesn't mean you hate those people. No, we love those people. But you love the Lord more than the influence that is being had on you away from Christ and you repent and turn from that sin. You guys understand what I'm saying? And at the same time, then the body of Christ, like we've been talking about all night, can be that great encouragement. And if you thought that was heavy, whew, you're getting ready to see some words that aren't in the scripture often. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. This is, these are like ashram poles. These are like massive idolatrous poles. And so he's telling them to break it down. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He's desirous of his glory more than anything else. His glory, his namesake, he will be exalted. Here we go, verse 15. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of a sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Okay? My guess is you didn't learn this in Sunday school, okay? My guess is the felt board didn't have this as a memory verse, right? So what does it mean? What does it mean? The word that's used here is harlot, is prostitution, is you have rendered yourself unfaithful, willing to be bought at a price, Now, I want to I hit some issues here, if you don't mind. Our relationships are quintessential, and some of you right now are in some very dangerous ones. In all love and sincerity, I want every single one of you to hear this right now. The Scripture makes clear that our relationships, especially as they move towards dating, And as they move towards marriage, are to be equally yoked. This scripture is yet another argument for that. Here's why. When a believing man, a God-loving, God-fearing, Jesus-walking-with man, starts dating with a girl who is either of a different religion or not a Christ worshiper or follower... We think that that somehow it's our responsibility in that setting to do the saving work and do that saving work in a dating relationship. Listen, if I've had this conversation once, I've had it a billion times, okay? So I just want to clear all of our teaching up on this. What the scripture commands is for men and women to be equally yoked. And that's not just a dude who says, I believe in God. Listen, if there's a guy or a girl, for those of you dating or will have kids one day, and you ask them about, their, about their, the person that they're getting ready to date, and their answer is, oh, they say they believe in God, run for the hills. If they say, I believe in God, that is a key, key line for the religious. The words that I want to hear and then the fruit that I want to see is, I love Jesus. Like, Jesus has saved me. I'm in connection with Lord Jesus. I'm submitting to Lord Jesus' direction. And yes, because of that, I believe God is good. When a dude can stand at my doorstep and communicate that, then maybe I can go with them on a double date to Hardee's. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Then maybe. Then maybe. All right? Because here's what happens. Here's what happens. Listen. What happens is a believing man or a believing girl, when they get connected, how in the world is this going to work? How can this relationship be influencing you towards the person of Christ if they don't believe in him? It is impossible. And I know what happens, right? Like you build the friendship. And then you think in your mind, because again, I've heard it from hundreds and hundreds of people. You believe in your mind, I can be the person that saves this person. And then there's a couple couples in this room that that happened. Right? 
Like one was a believer, one wasn't. You got married or started dating and God saved them in his grace. And so then they become the poster children for being unequally yoked, right? Oh yeah, well I talked to so-and-so and that's how they started. Okay, God was gracious, but that's not the ideal, right? I want to encourage you guys. It's not just in dating, it's not just in marriage. There is so much beauty when relationships are passionate for the Lord simultaneously. And I fully recognize right now that there's some of you that are wrestling or in dating relationships and you're like journeying through this or for many of us who will have kids one day that have to battle through this. We have to approach this in tremendous love. And here's what I've often seen happen is the non-believer becomes the enemy. And I want to throw that out the window right now. The non-believer, okay, for your son or daughter, for you, the non-believer is not the enemy. I hope that they come to the Lord. But I pray that that, that, that a situation is not going to be created with my daughter and that person in a dating relationship. So right now, for those of you that are struggling with that, tell yourself what you will want to tell your kids. God says, listen, you start inhabiting these other lands, it'll be very, very easy to become a prostitute, to become unfaithful, and to succumb and to forget that I love you. If people believe that he loved them, I wonder what would change. If people believe that he wasn't holding out on them. If you believe that that the tragedy, though incredibly difficult, didn't mean that God loved you, that God didn't love you. The power in that. So I want to share some truth together. Would you guys stand with me? So tonight, um, the only way to battle lies is truth. And tonight, as a body of Christ, we're going to share in that truth together. I'm going to put some passages up that talk about the beauty of God's love. And I'm going to share the reference, and then together, we're going to share the scripture with one another, reading it out loud together. Allowing the truth to overwhelm us. Allowing the truth of the scripture to battle the lies that some of you are believing. John chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Next slide. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. All of us. That's the truth of the love of Christ. Ephesians 5, 2. Come on. And walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen. First John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. First John chapter 4, verse 16. Look, so we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. It's because of this verse that this is my prayer tonight. God, help us know and believe the love that you have for us. The love that echoed on Mount Sinai that he spoke to Moses about. As you hold your passed away loved one, the echo through the scripture and your spirit, I love you. 
I love you. I'm not going anywhere. The reality when you're sitting and feeling alone, like no one cares, like no one's interested, like everyone's abandoned, and that still small voice says again, I love you. I told Moses, my son Jesus told everyone, and now I tell you again, I'm with you, you're not alone. I love you. And on and on and on, I want to pray tonight that for those struggling in relationships, for those battling to feel the sense of loneliness, for those discouraged for whatever reason, for those who completely feel abandoned from God's love, I want to pray tonight that we would know and believe. And then I think the reality is a church, a body of people who will quickly worship a God who means it. So Father, I pray in power. I pray in strength. I pray through the reality of your son, Jesus. That you will help us believe that your love is real. Help us believe that it transcends our struggles. Help us believe that it goes deeper than our realities or circumstances. Help us believe that that it is literally all that we have is your love. So God, I pray tonight that we would be a body that abides in it, that lives in it, that exists in it, and that finds our relationships here encouraging one another towards your cross, an empty tomb, and the glory of your name. God, right now in these moments, for the hurting, for the lost, for the confused, for those needing just a simple reminder, whisper those words again, that you love us. You're abounding in love.